Hebrews chapter 8. I think the last time we were in Hebrews was at the end of November. So that would mean right now we should have a test to see what you remember. But since I don't know exactly how I could do that, I'm just going to give you a very short little reminder. The author of Hebrews is calling the Jewish Christians that he's writing to to consider Jesus. His main thrust is to encourage, to persuade, to challenge these people to simply stop and to think about Jesus. And that might sound very simple, but that's, that's really what he's doing. It seems that these people have gone through some deep waters. Uh, if we get to chapter 10, it seems that some of them even had their property confiscated. And as, as a result, they're, they're becoming weary. They're, they're, they're being tempted to return to what they grew up with, and that's kind of the Jewish um, system of worship. And our author is now making a case that Jesus is far better than that old system. And he says, consider him. As I was thinking about this, it's, it's kind of like when Lynn and I, um, we loved to kayak on the Glenmore um, Reservoir or whatever. And it's amazing. It's not a very big little piece of water, is it? But you get on that and you get in your kayak and you, and you kind of, you gotta, you got to point in a certain direction. You've got you to look at a tree or some object on the other end. And, and then you make a beeline for it. But you've got to keep looking at the object that you're going to, that's where you want to get to. And it's astounding. It, it doesn't take long to stop looking, maybe, maybe talking to the person beside you or you're just pausing for a break, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're off course. And I think really Hebrews in, in, in a kind of, is, is kind of just the writer saying, remember to look at where you're headed. Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. As you look at Jesus, you begin to see his worth and his value, but it also reminds you of where we're going. Now, I don't think any of us in this room struggle with trying to turn back to the Jewish sacrificial system. I don't know how we would do that. There's no longer a temple in Jerusalem that that is even available. But... If you're like me, uh, don't you struggle at times with um, trusting Jesus? Don't you struggle with just believing him? That what he said is true? That what he said he will do? I do. And especially when life gets difficult. When the heat in life turns up. That when, that's when it becomes really tough for me. Are we tempted to return to the good old days? Are we, where, where do we run in the storms of life? For those of you who don't consider yourself a Christian, I don't think it's any different. I think you need to ask the question, um, when you encounter a crisis, where do you turn? Where do you turn for, to for strength? Where do you turn to for comfort? Where do you turn to for help? What sustains you? I think the question is, is, is the same for a believer and an unbeliever, for a, a religious person and, a, and an irreligious person, is what do we turn to? Where is our hope? Where does our hope lie? And the book of Hebrews is challenging us to consider Jesus. There's really no better comforter. There's really no better, there's 
no better one. Book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Let's um, turn there if you've got it. The verse 6 is, I, I see it as a hinge verse, a, a, a key verse in our text. It's kind of, it, it kind of summarizes what went before and, and is pointing ahead to what went ahead. So we're going to start with that verse. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as a covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises and and i summarize that simply by saying that that christ's ministry is better and christ's new covenant is better and so that the the ministry part he's looking at in the verse five verses and then then he's going to begin to talk about this new covenant so as I was looking at this text, trying to figure out how to un, un, uh, dissect it or unpack it, I thought, you know, I think the best way is for us to look at two of the Old Testament quotes that are found in this, in, in this passage. The first quote is found in the, in the first five verses, actually in verse 4 of ch- verse 8. And he's talking about the sanctuary. He's talking about the temple. I'm sorry, verse 5. It says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, talking about the Old Testament priests. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That little phrase in in quotation, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain, in verse 5, is taken out of Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. Okay? And, w- and what our author is simply saying is that when, when Moses was writing out and uh, putting down what was supposed this tabernacle was supposed to look like, what the furnishings were supposed to have, what the priests were supposed to wear, what he was doing was, was actually recording what he saw, the pattern he saw that was in heaven. Let's take, go back to the book of Exodus. If you have a, a Bible like, like one of these, the old-fashioned kind, grab it and, and go to the second book of the Bible and, and go to Exodus chapter 1. If you've got it on your phone, you can, do it, you can do it that way. But in Exodus 1, I just want to walk through and understand the whole context of Exodus because then I think that verse just jumps off the page at us. Okay? Exodus 1 is very quickly the Egyptians had forgotten that there was a Jew named Joseph that had literally, because of his wisdom, saved them from starvation. A new generation had arisen, and they had forgotten about Joseph, and now the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, begins to enslave the Israelites. We get to book it actually gets worse. He, he begins to be fearful of the Israelites because they're becoming large in number, and so he begins to put to death the, the male children. Chapter 2, Moses, one of those male children that are born in that time period, is spared miraculously, and ironically, Pharaoh's daughter is the one who finds Moses, pulls him out of the water, and raises him. We're told in chapter 2 that this Moses 
actually begins to watch his people suffer, and he thinks, well, I'm going I'm to save them. And he does so in his own strength, and he fails miserably. And he has to flee after killing an Egyptian, and he leaves Egypt. He becomes a shepherd, a nomad. Chapter 3 and 4, he has a miraculous encounter with God. There's a bush that's burning, and he's drawn to it, and God begins to speak to him, and God calls him, and Moses reluctantly answers that call and says, yes, I will go back to Egypt. Of course, longer story, I'm just making it short. You get to chapter 5, you have Moses is now in Egypt. This time he's coming under God's direction to save his people. And for the next several chapters, chapters 5 through 12, we have this amazing story of where, where God is doing these incredible miracles, these plagues. And finally, not only the Israelites, but finally the Egyptians and eventually even Pharaoh understand that this is none other than the finger of God that is doing these things. The Egyptians allowed the million or so Israelites to leave Egypt. We get to chapter 12, and we get this, um, the exodus, they're moving out. We get to chapter 14, and we have this incredible uh, crossing of the Red Sea. A million people cross the Red Sea on dry ground because God opens up the water. Undoubtedly, God is on the move in a way that is supernatural, and he doesn't do all the time. That's the point of it. Get to chapter 15, and Moses and the people of God are overwhelmed at how God had protected them and spared them, and we have this incredible praise song. Moses just praises God for what he's done. And then in uh, chapter 16, and uh, just the next few, chapter 16 through 18, we have God providing the people, a million people, food and water miraculously, even though the people are grumbling. We get to chapter 19, and they have this mind-boggling moment where the people of Israel are surrounding the Mount of Sinai, and God speaks to the people. The, the, the mountain begins to smoke, the earth is shaking, uh, there's thunder, there's lightning, God speaks, the people are in fear. But it's an amazing scene because God is among his people, he speaks to his people. Chapter 20, God speaks the Ten Commandments. 21, 22, 23, 24, there's actually details on, on how the people ought to live and, and what they ought to do. But in chapter 20, it begins very simply. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I did this. Now, because I did this, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Sounds pretty simple, right? <laughs> I did this incredible work for you. No other gods. Don't serve anybody else. We get to chapter 24. We're only one chapter away now from our our, our quote. Chapter 24, the people come to Moses and come to the 70 elders and come to Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, the other priests. And um, 
the people cry out that they, they, that they will. In verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So the Ten Commandments and all the rules that he had, had, uh, had uh, heard from God. This is what the people say. And all the people, Exodus 24, verse 3, And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. other gods don't lie honor father and mother the list goes on we will do this we're told in verse 4 chapter 24 exodus and moses wrote down all the words of the lord so at that point moses sits down and writes everything down then he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of israel so you get the picture he writes the words down. He gets up early. He builds an altar. Then we're told he sent young men of the people of Israel, verse 5, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen to the Lord. So now they take some ox and they sacrifice them to God. Now, verse 6, it gets interesting. And Moses took half of the blood from the ox and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. We don't do this, do we? But get this picture in your head. This is really important. Then he took the book of the covenant, and, and he read it in the hearing of the people. So everything he wrote down, now he reads it again to the people. And what do the people do? Verse 7, And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Twice now they said we're going to obey him. Yesterday and today they did it. Then what does Moses do? Verse 8, and Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. How would you like that moment? You mean those bowls, those basins he collected, he threw it on the people. He says, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What's going on there? Well, first off, what's a covenant? A covenant is a formal agreement. It's, it's legal in some sense, but it's, 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 it's similar to what happens in a wedding ceremony. Man and woman say, we will, we will promise to love one another till death do us part. They're making a covenant. They're making a vow. They're making a promise. In the covenants in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is making a promise to his people God is saying, you will be my people, and the people are saying, you will be my God. It's, it's, it's a relationship. It's a sacred relationship. And this relationship is, is, is bought with blood because the people are, are, are sinners, and so the ox represents that their, 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 their sins need to be forgiven. God's wrath has to be kept away so that they can actually dwell with God, that they could be with God. And it's sprinkled on them as a sign that they've been covered with the blood. That's what's kind of going on. It's, it's a remarkable scene because if you go back to the first book of the Bible, you have Adam and Eve. They rebel against God. What does, what, what does God have to do with them? He drives them out of the garden, out of his presence. And now God is saying to a people, a people of about a million people, he says, 
I, I, I want to dwell with you. I want to be, I, I, want, I want covenant, I want relationship. After this incredible, remarkable scene, we're told in chapter 25 that now Moses goes up to heaven, not to heaven, I'm sorry. <laughs> the people thought he went to heaven. We'll get there. Chapter 25, they, he goes up on the top of the mountain. He gets engulfed by the cloud, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's there, he's seeing this vision. He's seeing whatever he is showing that we're told about in Hebrews. Then he begins to write down how this tabernacle, this tent, is supposed to be made. And he records it in chapter 25 all the way up to the chapter 31. So he's gone for 40 days, 40 nights. Chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. We're talking, Moses has been gone a month. It was about a month ago that they said, we will obey everything God has said. And the very first thing he said was, I got you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And within a month, they're disobeying the first command. God is angry. He wants to wipe them out. Moses, uh, on their behalf, mediates between them, and, and, and God in his grace spares the people. And there is... There is um, consequences, but there is also forgiveness. But it's an incredibly astounding story. And what do they do? They build calves, and it sounds like they have this wild party, and, and they're worshiping these calves, and you might go, well, why calves? Like, if my, if, if, if our prime minister was gone for a month, I wouldn't build a golden calf. Why calves? Reichen says it this way. He says, the Egyptians worshipped any number of bovine deities. The ultimate in bull worship was, however, the apis bull, considered the manifestation of Ptah, the creator god worshipped at Memphis in lower Egypt. So the Egyptians had all kinds of gods, and a lot of those gods were in the form of cattle. And, and the way that they displayed the, the god who created the heavens and the earth was a, a bull And that's what they did. And, and so what, what, what was Israel doing? Reichen says, once again, it was proving to be more difficult to get Egypt out of the Israelites than it was to get the Israelites out of Egypt. I mean, if you stop and think about that, that statement's quite amazing. What did it take God to get the Israelites out of Egypt? It took incredible earth-moving miracles. And literally a month, when, when things are going rough, when, when their leader's kind of gone, when they're so, somewhat uncertain, what do they do? And they're going back to what they know. Now, this is all important because our author in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, he, he, he's saying that Jesus is the better ministry. The offering he brings is not an oxen. What does he bring? himself. Uh, it, it, when we get back to Hebrews, he says that Jesus has a better sanctuary. He, he doesn't serve in the earthly tent. He actually serves in the heavenly tent that Moses looked at and saw 
and, and then records, and the one on earth was a copy of that, was a shadow of that. And we don't really understand what, what, what that looked like, but Jesus serves in the, in the, the true one, could we say? And what we're going to see, Jesus also mediates a better covenant. Not that the old one was broken, or even necessarily bad. I, do, do you think it's bad when God said, you shall have no other gods before me? Do you think it's bad when God says, thou shalt not lie? No. But look at Hebrews chapter 8. What was wrong with the old covenant? In verse 8, for he... God finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. Look down to verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. What was the problem with the old covenant? The people. The people would not and they could not obey. Did you hear that? People would not and they could not obey. Now, just in case that wasn't obvious after one month, God gave some 800 years, roughly speaking, okay? It was probably about 1400 B.C., somewhere in there, when Moses brought the people out of Egypt, somewhere in there. We're not really sure on the dating of that, but, but, but the time about 600 B.C., the Israelites were still disobeying the covenant. And they had generation after generation after generation. Now, there, there was times when they, when they disobeyed it worser. By the end, you have guys like Manasseh, who's not offering an ox, he's, he's offering his child to the other gods. But even in the good days, the glory days, you got King David, King Hezekiah, good kings who love the Lord. They, they, but even they did not obey the covenant completely and fully. So we get to about 600 BC, BC, and the Egyptian, or it's not not the Egyptians anymore. It's the Babylonians that become the enemy, and Israel's in trouble. Judah's in trouble. Much of their, their land is, is already forsaken, and Jerusalem is standing on its own, but Jerusalem is under siege. The Babylonians have them under siege. There's a guy named Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet. First 29 chapters of his book, and this is, again, real short synopsis. He's, he's basically d explaining with tears why the people are going to be judged, how they had broken the covenant over and over and over and over again. Why God was just in, in, in destroying the people. In Jeremiah chapter 31 is where we get this long quote we find in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, all the way to verse 12. Actually, it's the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. It's an important quote. But after but let's jump back to Jeremiah now. You got your Bibles? Turn to Jeremiah. It's uh, kind of halfway through the good book. Jeremiah after Isaiah, before Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 31. That's how I started the service. 
You see, after Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, makes it very clear that God is right in, in his judgment of the people of Israel, he comes to chapter 30 and he begins to console the same people. He brings, begins to bring comfort to the same people, which is remarkable. And in chapter 31, he begins to say, you know what, there's going to be a new covenant. Not the, not the one that we made with Moses, but there's going to be something coming that's new. But before he says that, I think before he says it, to help us understand the, the, the beauty and the wonder of this new covenant, we need to understand chapter 31, verse 15. Listen to these words. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. What's going on there? Again, Riken says this. To understand God's comfort, one must first understand Rachel's loss. Jeremiah could hear the sound of Rachel sobbing in Jerusalem, coming all the way from Ramah. Ramah was a transit camp for refugees. The Babylonians dragged their prisoners five miles from Jerusalem to a staging area at Ramah, where they were chained together for the long march to Babylon. It must have been a place of utter despair, fathers chafing against their chains and mothers lifting their voices in lamentation. Their children, their babies were gone. Some had starved during the siege. Others had been put to the sword during the invasion. In the confusion of battle, still others had been ripped from their mother's breasts, never to be seen again. Jeremiah is writing in those days. And there was a period of time when, 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 when the Babylonians would grab people and take them captive. It didn't happen all at once. It, it, it culminated in 586 B.C. But long before that, some of the best were taken. Ezekiel, Daniel, others were, were grabbed and by, by chains taken off and and you can just hear the, the heartache and the crying. Last September, we took Josh to Ottawa. We got him settled in his apartment. The girls cleaned the apartment. The, we filled his fridge full of food. We gave him instructions on how to cook the food. You can ask him if he's been able to do that. And then we said goodbye. And we cried. And, and we, we, we drove from we drove from Ottawa all the way down to Flint, Michigan. It was like a whole day trip. That was probably the quietest ride we'd been on because we, we, we missed him. But he was going where it was good. He was going to something he was desiring to be at. He was going in, 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 a, in a direction that was a good thing, and, and yet our hearts still broke. I can't imagine this. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem? And and, 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 they, and and they're ripping your children away from you and you, you, you probably never will see them. Your husband has probably been killed or your spouse has been, like, it's, 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 it's just a horror. It's a nightmare. 
No wonder Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. Not only did he see it coming and had to tell the people, but then he watched it happen. And in the midst of that, God in his kindness gave Jeremiah a word of comfort. This is what he says. Jeremiah chapter 31. Well, let's go to Hebrews just because he's just going to quote it. Let's, let's go there now and stay there, okay? Or try to. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. These people who are in chains, uh, they're being carried off to Babylon. These words must have brought comfort. We know they did for Daniel. We're told that Daniel was reading Jeremiah and and understood that the time was coming to an end, that, that they would be brought back. When will this new covenant happen? The author of Hebrews tells us it's already happened. But when did it happen? Listen to the words of Jesus, Luke chapter 22. I think I have it on the screen. Verse 14. You may have heard these words. When the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at a table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I die. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he, Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after that they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You see verse 20 there? This cup is poured out for you as a new covenant in my blood. The next time we read that phrase, new covenant, we find it here. That's remarkable. Jesus says, remember, remember the ox that were slayed and the bulls that were kept and some was thrown on the altar and others on the people? 
Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling those around him the night before he was betrayed, he says, he's telling them, that was the old covenant. This is the new covenant. I am that ox. It's my blood that will be shed. And the covenant that he makes with us, it, 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 it's new and it's, it's also better because rather than, than writing all those rules, remember Moses on the next day, he writes all the rules down he, and then he reads them to the people. Instead of sticking them on tablets, what does he do? According to Hebrews, according to Jeremiah, he writes them on our hearts and on our minds. Ezekiel talks about the same thing, and he says, since the spirit within us is going to take the, the heart of stone out of us and put us in a heart of flesh so, so that we can obey him. Those who are believers have the ability to obey him and the desire to obey him because he writes it on our heart and he puts a spirit within us. It's a new covenant. He, he says in Hebrews, he talks about how, how um, not only that, but we will know him. That doesn't mean we don't need teachers. He's not talking about that because otherwise why would he give teachers? What he's telling us is that from the least to the greatest, those who uh, believe in this Jesus will just know him because he lives within us. That's the new covenant. And then verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That had to be incredibly refreshing for the people of Jeremiah's day, but that is incredibly refreshing for us because he forgives us our sins in a way that is permanent. Oh. I can know him and I can be in his presence. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you, you don't want to go back to that old covenant. Consider Jesus. And the, and the author of Hebrews is telling us, you guys, you've got a, a high priest that gave his own life. He, he actually now serves in the heavenlies. We'll talk more about that as we move forward. What can be of greater value, worth, and comfort than him? When life gets you down, consider Jesus. Oh, consider Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to gather around the table. That's what we do each week. We, we just really stop and pause and consider Jesus. Remarkable. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. Truth is you love me, love us far more. Father, I pray that, you know, we talk a lot about a lot of stuff, but Lord, the truth is uh, that stuff is crazy important because that stuff is about you. For people in this room that don't know you, I pray, Father, that they would go, you know what, what can be greater of greater value and worth than this Jesus who gave his life? I pray that they would run to you. And Father, for those of us who do know you, I pray that... Um, get back in that kayak and we begin to look at you and start rowing in that direction. And as we do, Lord, would you change us, transform us, make us new.
Father, I pray that we'd become a people that's so, so in love with you that it becomes contagious. Would you please do that work? In your precious name we pray.